Hey, serious privacy enthusiasts, ready to ace your AI data privacy game? Oh, you bet, Kate. Dive into the world of TrustSark's Nemity Research, your go-to for staying on top of regulatory developments in AI and privacy. Seriously, Nimity Research maintains a massive privacy and regulatory database featuring expert guidance and analysis from legal and privacy pros. So save time on privacy research, cut your compliance timeline, and reduce costs with Nimity Research. Get your regulatory research and insight at your fingertips with a free trial. So get ahead in privacy compliance and start that free trial today. Go to trustark.com slash nimity dash free dash trial. This is Serious Privacy by Trustark. Here are your hosts, Paul Breitbart and Kay Royal. When we prepare for the podcast, often we try to come up with an overarching theme for our discussions. Also when it is a weekend privacy episode. However, sometimes the connection is not immediately clear and just shows itself in hindsight. And that also happened this week. We talk about the sea. The letter, that is, not the wet thing that you find along the coast. So this week, you'll hear about California, CCPA, COPPA, children's data, CARS, Cuba, consultations, and compliance. A lot to listen to. My name is Paul Breitbart. And I'm Kay Royal, and welcome to Serious Privacy. Okay, Paul, this is an interesting, unexpected question, which could get kind of deep for us. Uh-oh. Who are you? All <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, well, my name is Paul Bradford. I was born on bleep <laughs> in Rotterdam, the Netherlands. And I'm a data protection lawyer. How about you? <laughs> Me, you know, it's interesting. I think the first thing that comes to mind is a mother and a grandmother. So I put it, and it's funny that wife doesn't, yeah, wife doesn't come to mind first, but mother and grandmother does. And, you know, most of my life has been centered around my children and what I could do. I was a single parent for a long time and we survived some very bad circumstances. I don't, I don't hide the fact that I was in an abusive marriage. And so we're really, really close. So that's how I first identify. And then after that, I'm going, I Dr. Royal. (laughs) I am Dr. Royal. I have a PhD and I'm so stinking proud of it. It's ridiculous. And then I'm a privacy attorney. <laughs> yeah, I guess for me, it's it's mostly work at the first place because right? a lot of the things that I do relate to privacy and data protection, whether it's my day-to-day job or the site jobs or the podcast or all the other things that I do, a lot evolves around privacy and data protection. Yeah. You live it and breathe it. But I also hope that I'm a good friend to a lot of people. There you go. I'm probably not a good friend. Well, but you are family. (laughs) I think my friends might say I am, but I'm so introverted, which I know shocks everybody. Just keep listening. I really am introverted. I'm extroverted when it's required to advocate on side of beside someone else or I'm being paid to do it like my job. Otherwise, that whole question about who are you at a party? Are you the host? Are you the wallflower? Are you dancing on the tables naked? I'd be at home in the bathtub reading a book. (laughs) <laughs> so okay for me i think it would depend on the on the party and on the people who are there that too which reminds me a little bit about the data protection regulator who gotten so much social media trouble for posting a picture of her personal time where she was at a party having a good time that was the finnish prime minister yeah and that sucks apparently we are not allowed to have a good time anymore you know, that's kind of like the um, 
behavior and the moral clauses that, you know, teachers are on, it seems to be quite often, think police officers are pretty much under it. But of course, judges are under it. Or a typically professional sports teams will have a morals clause against their, you know, people that they can't be caught doing certain things. I don't think they say they can't do them. I think they can't be caught. I don't know. I haven't read one. But it's it's interesting because people seem to want you to present that proper public persona that basically does away with the fact that you're a person and you have a life. If you're not doing something illegal, does it really matter? No, I don't think so. And I think everybody should continue to be the human being despite whatever job they hold. Right. And especially if you are in your 30s and you happen to be prime minister, but you also have friends and want to go to a party. Yeah. Why not? As long as does it matter? You, don't, you don't ignore your duties as prime minister. Right. And you were elected as a person, not as a robot who has no fun. Exactly. But anyway, okay. Talking about politics, there is actually a, a, a very nice political tidbit coming out of the privacy community. Ooh, what? Because the former Slovenian information commissioner, who is also the privacy commissioner, is now the front runner in the presidential elections as an independent. Ooh, interesting. What's that going to mean? Well, she has already said in a number of interviews that she will not hesitate to speak out for human rights and fundamental rights when she sees the need. So it will be very interesting. And that might resonate with a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, and of course, I'm very much looking forward to having a cup of coffee with the Slovenian president when I'm next in the country. I love it. I love it. So we are, we are officially endorsing Natasha Piercz-Mussar for the presidency of Slovenia. Absolutely. Blind endorsement here. I'm going on Paul's recommendation. We're good. <laughs> but, you know, that also reminds me, Mikhail Gorbachev died yesterday. Yes. And he was the, the Russian leader that we actually liked. He did good things. He did. He also did some not so good things. But Yeah, he did some not so good things. But that is true, though, because one of the articles I read says it relies on the world's amnesia for those not-so-good things he did. But, ah, yeah, okay, but may he rest in peace. There we go. Okay, so... What's on your mind? What's on my mind? All kinds of things, all kinds of things. But shall we start with Cuba? Sure. They passed You want it. a cigar? Right. I, I think that's what a lot of people really like. But let's talk about the Cuba data protection law that they passed. I'm pulling it up here so I can give you more information. So they approved it on Saturday. And it is for the protection and access to personal data. I think it was a little unexpected coming through. They've had some turbulent times when it comes to privacy protections in Cuba. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Is it Cuba or Cuba? It depends on whether you speak English or Spanish. Yeah. Is that like human or human? As, I think as so. As people pronounce it. Okay, fine. We'll go from there. So they passed an internet censorship and cybersecurity law, I think, last year, 21, maybe 20, late 20. I think they did, but they've still had a little bit turbulent times here. So they finally passed a, a comprehensive, rather comprehensive protection law. And let me see if I can pull up uh, the actual law here then. It gives broad, broad individual rights, not any individual rights that would shock anyone. They're the standard rights that they have. 
but it does guarantee their rights. It actually, I think the Minister of Justice pointed out that this is a continuation of their constitution right. So kind of codifying that constitutional Mm -hmm. right they have and specifying what it actually means. So we'll see how it is. I don't know when it goes into effect. I don't see that date here, but we'll keep you updated on that. We'll keep you updated. And then I heard something about someone in South America, I believe, that was passing a law. Well, right? one, one, one more thing on, on, on Cuba, because Ken Carey from the Brookings Institute actually wondered on Twitter whether this moderate quality law, as it has been baptized by Graham Greenleaf, the professor from Australia, keeping track of all the privacy laws, how it would compare with ADPA and CCPA. Ah, I haven't gone down to looking and at that Greenleaf yet. said, well, there is no need for comparison because both ADPA and CCPA are much higher quality. I would expect the differences to be even greater once comparisons of the laws in practice become possible, which, of course, with non-finalized text is very difficult. But it seems that Graham Greenleaf, at least, is not impressed by the Cuban law. Ah. At the same time, it is a law. And that is better than than no law. Exactly. Something is better than nothing. Exactly. So there is more movement in Latin America. Argentina is considering a new law. A draft of that bill was actually presented yesterday at a a forum discussion where also the Argentinian Data Protection Authority was present. And I would suggest actually that we don't dive into those details now because in a few weeks, we have the former information of the former privacy commissioner from Colombia, Jose Bermudez, who will be joining us for a discussion on all the developments in Latin America. Wonderful. So we'll save our breath for that. Yeah, I like that. Let's dive into that then. So with that, I guess probably the biggest things that have come across my desk lately actually apply directly to my job. So it's no surprise that most people have probably heard of the California settlement against Sephora. And most of the things that they were deemed for by the attorney general had to do with, one, not accurately portraying that they sell data under the very broad California definition of sale, which could also be for an exchange of something of valuable consideration. Now, part of that is probably related to cookies and trackers when you go and you dig through the actual complaint. And remember, there was that big controversy of if letting third parties place cookies on your site and scrape up the data, not data from you, data from the individuals that they independently collect on your website, is that considered a sale? I'm doing air quotes here, a sale of data. And that's why a major driver is to why they defined a definition of share data as well uh, was to hope hopefully put rest that controversy there because they fully intended to capture sharing data with analytic companies and third-party advertisers and things like that as part of the California law. So most everything was Sephora centered around that. So because they didn't disclose that they sold data, they did not therefore have a link on their website, do not sell my personal data means they didn't have it covered in their privacy notice, and they also didn't have it covered in their parties, uh, their contracts with third parties. And if you don't cover it in your contracts with third parties, then they are third parties as opposed to service providers, which service providers are vendors to companies that are under restrictions in the contract to not do other things with the data. So mm-hmm. pretty much all of it ran down in there. However, it was also that Sephora failed to fix them 
within 30 days because under CCPA, you've got 30 days to cure before the attorney general can seek enforcement. That goes away in 2023, but they also failed to do that. So it was a pretty hefty settlement as well as oversight responsibilities that they have. But the attorney general took the opportunity to warn all those who are subject to CCPA that he plans to take a very, very strong approach to enforcement under this. And it's interesting because he kept bringing up global privacy control, GPC, kind of the newest version of do not track. Yeah, I was surprised by that. It doesn't really work right now. It's, 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 it's a technology that's still in its infancy. We're working towards, companies are working towards, other companies are working towards the ability to be able to recognize it. But the law requires that you have two methods for people to express their rights. It could be a toll-free number. It can be an online email. It can be a form online. It can be a physical address. It could be a physical posting of the notice if that's applicable to your business. There's all different routes that companies can use. And apparently he's coming down on GPC, you must honor. And that's going to be hard for a lot of companies to honor GPC, especially with the controversy if the if the consumer has signed up for certain programs or has indicated their preference to you and then the GPC is a different preference, then how are you going to reconcile the differences between them? And some of the new state laws also include it. Colorado also has a universal opt-out mechanism. So how are they going to reconcile those? And sometimes the GPC takes precedent. Sometimes the prior choice by the company takes precedent or to the company takes precedent. But how do you reconcile them? How do you legitimately reach out to consumers and go, oh, wait a minute, we see your GPC, but you opted into our loyalty program. If we honor your GPC, then you're out of the loyalty program. Hello. <laughs> and then to have to pass that down to your service providers. Yeah, that seems that seems pretty complex. It is. It is something for more jurisdictions to bear in mind because also the new e-privacy regulation, should it ever come into effect, will include uh, language right. on respecting browser settings, which would also be similar to the GPC. Yep. And I was surprised that this was uh, so problematic. At the same time, another problematic issue apparently was the use of analytics data. And the analytics service was not named, although probably everybody can guess which is the one that Sephora uses. Right. I would also not be surprised if Sephora is one of the companies that the CNIL actually also issued enforcement for analytics mm. against, because it is a, a luxury a luxury brand for things sold that Sephora would sell that is mentioned in one of the decisions from the French Data ah. Protection Authority. So also there, it seems that Sephora was hit, even though that's not officially disclosed. This is just my hunch, to be clear. But it could very well be that they are hit both by the CNIL and by the C- by the California Attorney General at the same time, which also makes me wonder, has there been any contact between the two in this process or not? Right, probably not. I'm just guessing, supposing, but probably not. But I mean, it's my experience and your experience and our listeners' experience that if one regulator comes after you, the rest of them are going to pile on like a wolf pack. Doesn't Mm -hmm. mean they don't have the legitimate right to pile on. 
but just it makes it very difficult for the company to manage that level of inquiries and responding and everything when you're in the middle of trying to do some do something else. And by something else, I mean respond to the first inquiry or if you have a data breach or something, whatever it is that they're coming after you for. So anyway, that doesn't mean people should be let off, but it is it is No, certainly not. Certainly not. But it's interesting to see where this is heading. I also enjoyed the take from Omar and Gabe Maldos at the IAPP on the choice of defendants. It said, well, this is also very symbolically a French company where the European regulators came out slamming the Silicon Valley tech companies. California is now hitting back at a European company. (laughs) I'm not sure whether that is deliberate or just coincidence, but it is a nice take. We would we would expect that under the PIPL because they explicitly have a, pr- a provision that says you hit us, we'll hit back. Yeah, and there it didn't happen yet. So Right, exactly. Oh, that's interesting. Very interesting. So I like Sephora. In my mind, they're probably going to come out of this just fine. They're going to take the actions that they've been told to take, they need to do, and they'll probably be more active in looking at regulations and laws that are coming active as well that might apply to them. I say that without knowing if if they were involved in any of the other legal making processes. But typically, if you're if you're hit with something, then you're going to start paying attention with the laws that mm-hmm. address that hitting, right? It is. Yeah, it is true. And I think this is also a fair warning for uh, a lot of European companies yeah. that CCPA could be very relevant to them if they yeah. do business in California and that they should actually take a look whether California applies whether a do not sell or do not share link should be included. Right. What to do with global privacy control and also still what to do with analytics. Yeah. Because this is something that we will see more and more. Um, Certainly the browser settings, certainly the analytics. So it is not something that can just be ignored. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting because I find that with the GDPR, American companies that have a foothold in Europe, a physical foothold in Europe, pay a lot more attention to GDPR than companies that do not have a physical location there. Some of them even to the point that, you know, they say they can't be enforced against because they don't, they did not appoint a representative and they don't have a physical location there. I'm beginning to wonder if it doesn't go both ways. European companies that don't have a physical presence in the U.S. are kind of not paying a whole lot of attention to U.S. state laws. No, that's certainly true. And of course, Sephora does have a presence. So for them, that's not, 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 that's not part right, of the that's argument. that's not the case for them. But yeah, I think companies all around the world should be much more aware that if they are offering goods and services in certain jurisdictions and that becomes serious business, that indeed also the compliance requirements will have to be met, whether that is tax or environmental or ESG, or indeed data protection. And right, that is not easy. Luckily, commercial break, there are databases like Nemity Research that actually give you those insights. Yeah, And for me, it's very helpful almost on a daily basis to look at what other jurisdictions are doing. Right, exactly. And I do know that in my actual job, when I am evaluating a vendor or a potential service, I quite often get back, we're GDPR compliant and that's stronger than COPPA, so we're good. Hmm. Uh, no. Nope. First of all, you probably are not GDPR compliant. And second of all, GDPR and children's data is still a very vague situation. 
It it really is. Basically, the only thing under GDPR, GDPR is the one that says, yeah, under 14, you got to get basically parents' permission. and Or 13 or 16, depending on the member state. I was going to say, depending on the member states. So it's it's really interesting how that is because um, trying to explain to them that COPPA has very specific requirements that you have to do, which leads us wonderfully into the newest law passed by California. I did not see if the governor signed it. More than likely, by the time our episode comes out, he's expected to sign it. So I would expect it to be. If not, then just just ignore this whole portion of, of the <laughs> of the podcast. We're good. But it is interesting because we've known for years that California planned to codify the age appropriate design code out of the UK. Mm-hmm. And so the UK requires it. There are very specific requirements under that as well. So California has codified it. And I have to tell you, there's quite a few people in big places that are against the California Age Appropriate Design Code. Okay, tell me tell me a bit more about this. I may be very ignorant, but I have not paid attention to the Age Appropriate Design Code since I've never worked with children's data. And I assume this deals with children's data primarily. Mm, it does. So basically, it tells you that you have, if if your product is directed towards children or children are likely, this is how California puts it, likely to be accessed by children, or you have actual knowledge or you have knowledge that children are using your services. So put this in terms of YouTube, who had a FTC settlement against them, that they said they were designed for a general audience. They are not targeting children. They are designed towards a general audience. However, they knew that children were using their services. There Mm -hmm. was even a YouTube for kids. So they Yeah, but children would never use that, of course. Right, exactly. So we're a general audience. Uh, so that's what it is. And so basically they say that you have to, before anything new or different in the services, products, or features are offered, you have to complete a DPIA. You have to biennial, biennial, how do we, biennial, biennially? Biannually, yeah. Okay, that's going to be like operationalization to me, <laughs> biennially, review all their DPIAs. And they have to go through it. Now, this is where they've gotten a lot of criticism for is because they're saying that whether the design of the online product search or feature could harm children, including exposing them to harmful or potentially harmful content on the online product service or feature, whether or not it is children experiencing or being targeted, whether or not children could witness, participate in or be subject to, or whether it allows them to be a party to or exploited by. Very, very high standards to meet. I mean, there's no clear definitions of exactly what you mean, but frankly, they essentially took this from the UK mm-hmm. age appropriate design code, and the UK doesn't argue about these things. So I'd how- have to look up and see if that specific language is in the UK, but this comes back to an opinion I've shared before that here in the US, we argue the meaning of every single word, A, and, and the, and where commas are and where semicolons are, and it changes the definition of a sentence. Europeans say what they mean and mean what they say. Whether there is a comma or a smudge in the Constitution? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Western reference, just to be clear. (laughs) Yeah, so they have to document the risk. They have to provide the DPIA to the regulators if they ask. They have to have a clear notice for anything. They're going to establish a working group to help work on all of this. So 
They want to address identifying the services, products, or features likely to be accessed. They want to evaluate the interests of children related to a lot of their privacy, physical health, mental health, well-being, and how those interests might be furthered, ensuring that the processes company use are correct, assessing and mitigating any risk, publishing information to help companies do it, and then leverage the substantial and growing expertise. I love how they codified that. Leverage the substantial and growing expertise of the California Privacy Protection Agency in long-term considerations. Basically, you have to you have to design your code towards everything that would keep kids safe. And how would this impact your daily work? Will it have an impact on your daily work? We've already uh, started implementing a lot of the aspects of these anyway because we our business is built around children. So we lack of a better word, we prioritize the privacy around children. And essentially, at this point, we treat everyone 18 and under our services for three to 18, essentially the same. We do recognize that there are some circumstances where it is critical that what is being offered does not apply to under 30. So we do take that into account because all of our teachers are independent contractors. So we have to evaluate what's going on there, whether it can be offered on our platform. But we have a trust and safety department as well as a privacy dedicated to that. We, our engineers always work after it. any of their projects and project um, plans that they put together. I'm a mandatory part of. Trust and safety is a mandatory part of. They actually have to explain what the implications are to both of us and get sign off for doing it. So I think it's something that for our company is essentially baked into the process. <laughs> Now, the thing is, they don't give any guidance on what a DPIA would look like under the CCPA or under the age-appropriate design code. So I think that's one of the things for companies to be able to assess <laughs> is what does that look like? Because we all know that it's an interruption to the business to make them go away from the normal process they use and fill out a form. And so often it works on the privacy person to fill out a form to make sure all is covered. But essentially, they just need you to document it. I mean, we're doing the actions. We're documenting it in the project plan, but we'll probably have to get a little bit more formalized over that, which is which is no surprise coming out of it. So I actually was pleased to see this pass. I don't know if the and papa would prevail over this as well, because this actually states to take COPPA into account and work within the parameters. And we know that COPPA has had several proposals to increase their age to under 16 rather than under 13, or at least bring in part of that, because California has 13 to 15 with specific requirements as well. So I guess What the end result is, privacy laws are getting more often more frequent and more tough. So well, if you handle personal data at all. Oh, there was an interesting part of the California Age Appropriate Whole. They exempt broadband internet access services as defined in a particular section. They exempt telecommunications services as defined in the U.S. code or the delivery or use of a physical product. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And it, it is because, as I said, a lot of companies that I work with that they didn't design their product for children, but they know it's being used. Maybe they're providing it to school districts and school districts are signing online and using it and having to explain to them, yes, I understand that school districts 
can do it. However, you also have to understand that we're not a school. We don't have the legal authority in Parentis Loco to approve services on behalf of the children. No, and that would so, also be very strange. And even the school district, for the school district, it would be very hard to do that because also they are not a formal legal representative of the child or their parents. Well, schools are allowed to sign off on it if the schools are using it for their educational processes with the children within their realm of responsibility. Absolutely. Does this mean an after-school program such as a YMCA or something, Big Brothers, Big Sisters would have to? Mm, Probably not. Okay. Probably not. But you got to get verified parental consent. And this is something I've seen some of the um, opponents of this actually stand up for is their objection to using machine learning or AI to verify someone's age. And that's going to always be controversial because, you know, the articles I read made it sound like all the websites are going to access all your cameras on random basis and verify that you're an adult or you're a child when you're accessing services. Wow. I don't think that's quite what it means, <laughs> but okay. Only time will tell. Uh, Only I'm curious also tell. to see what enforcement we will see from this age-appropriate design code uh, and how that will work in practice. Very, very broad language. So it's going to be interesting. It's definitely one I will be working with intimately. So I'm eager to see where this goes because, frankly, I am interested in keeping kids safe online. So any questions, field them to Kay or field them to Ralph, because apparently <laughs> this is coming from out of the UK. So then we have our UK expert, Ralph, um, on mm-hmm. call as well. <laughs> Absolutely. And Ralph wrote me when it passed. So we've had a little bit of correspondence back and forth of it. But I do think it's interesting in light of also the CCPA, the other state laws that are coming up in the other state laws. I think except for one, they all include information from children as sensitive data. So in that definition of sensitive data that we've all acknowledged that the U.S. hasn't ever really had, only by circumstantial evidence have we had sensitive data classification. So it is really interesting because then there's rules and laws that are going to address the data you collect from children. Most of them have the caveat from known children. but. This might actually work in a roundabout way. California passing the age-appropriate design code might work in a roundabout way in that HIPAA can be used in lawsuits to establish what a baseline care practice would be. Hmm. So what are the expectations? What's the standard of care? HIPAA has been used to show what the standard of care is when it comes to protecting data, even if it cannot serve as the genesis of a lawsuit itself. So it might be interesting to see if, well, we know California, but to see if this starts working to establish a default standard of care when it comes to children's data, because I doubt seriously that companies that are subject to this are going to have different practices for the rest of the U.S. Yeah, that would be very stupid. (laughs) That's going to be too hard to handle. So that's going to be really interesting to see how this develops. Like I said, we'll know by the time this is live whether or not the governor has signed it or not. So very interesting. To be seen. Before we wrap up, I have one more interesting case from Europe that I found. This is actually from late July already. And this is about geolocation of rental vehicles. Oh, yeah. The the, the French Data Protection Authority imposed a fine on Ubico, Ubico International, 
of 175,000 euros. And basically, these are short-term rental cars that you find in the street. You can use an app, unlock them, and then then use them for a couple of hours or a couple of days. Oh, like you would use a bicycle. The scooters as well yeah. in, in big U.S. cities, but then with a car. Right. And the main concern here was the failure to comply with the obligation to ensure data minimization, data retention, and also information to individuals. Basically, what they would do is collect a lot of GPS data because then you would know where the car would be. and then which makes um, sense. You can find it in the app. But what they would actually do is while driving, they would record every 500 meters the exact GPS location of the car. Also, when you unlock the car, when you lock the car again. So basically it is... That seems a bit excessive. It's a constant monitoring of the individual using the car. They claim that this is to ensure the maintenance and performance of the service. So to make sure that the vehicle is returned to the right place, to monitor the state of the fleet, etc. To locate the vehicle in case of theft. And also to give assistance to customers in the event of an accident. Well, you'll already say this sounds quite excessive. That was also the conclusion of the CNIL. They say none of these purposes justify the collection of geolocation in such detail because it is very intrusive in the private life of users. Now, did they recommend what would not be excessive? No, I don't believe that they did, at least not from from what I've seen. And in principle, that is also not for the DPA to determine. That is for the company to motivate. You noticed that I was, was laughing during that one going. Ha, yeah, ha, that ha. is that is the first first axe to grind with this company. Right. But secondly, they said, well, all this data is retained for three years after the end of the vehicle rental. And that doesn't match with the three purposes stated. That's not warranted at all. You would need no. to delete the data as soon as the car is returned. Exactly. Plus, apparently this is not such a, a young company. During the investigation, they found personal data of users who had been inactive for more than eight years, and they were still in the company's database. So also there, the DPA said this cannot be, bringing to mind a case from the Netherlands against Transavia Airline. During a data breach, they discovered that data was breached that was over 10 years old. Right. Also there, it it led to a fine of 600,000 euros. That's what we keep saying. Security is not infallible. They're going to get by your security. And once they do, what's going to get you in trouble? Data. Privacy And laws. exactly the get data that data. is old. So make sure you clean up your databases. Exactly. And then the final point that the French EPA complained about was the failure to inform individuals because all of the relevant information on uh, data processing was very hard to find. It was not a one-click access on the registration form but multiple clicks away, which was not so 175,000 euros in fines. Wow. And the name of the company was made public, which is also not uh, always the case in France. Right. Are they a European company? They are, I believe, a European company, and they are active in uh, multiple countries. So this was a a partnered investigation together with Belgium, Denmark, Spain, Italy, and Germany. They only operate in big cities, obviously like all these flex mobility, mobility as a service companies uh, would. But apparently in in some of these larger capitals in these countries, you could use them. And now they've received a slap on the wrist. Wow. Well, pretty strong slap, though. Exactly. It's an expensive one. (laughs) Yep. Pretty strong slack. Uh, Slacks. Pretty strong. (laughs) Pretty strong slap. 
there's one of the bloopers that Ralph would like, right? Exactly. And on that note, we wrap up another episode of Serious Privacy. If you like our series, please do recommend us to your friends or colleagues. More listeners is always good for us. We're close to getting to a thousand downloads a week. So we are pretty excited about that. Uh, and thank we're, you we're, all. We're public about that. We we don't try to hide that we have a million listeners or something because, hey, we're in a niche field. But don't you think your privacy compatriots or perhaps your IT, your HR, your security, your legal, they need to learn about privacy too, right? Exactly. So thank you for listening. If you want to join the conversation, find us on LinkedIn at Serious Privacy. You'll find Kay on Twitter as Heart of Privacy, myself as Real Paul B, and the podcast as at Podcast Privacy. Until next week, bye. Bye, y'all. That was Serious Privacy. Hey listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further. Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI. TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost-effectively. And here's the kicker. Protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy-driven compliance software. Because they're... Deep automation streamlines data privacy governance, cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting. TrustArc's enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security. Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI, and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework. If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central. Seriously, one of my best parts. It uses automation and privacy expertise to understand your requirements, build and manage your privacy program with ease. Oh, I agree. Privacy Central is your go-to to measure your progress toward responsible AI data compliance. Stay ahead with TrustArc's Privacy Central. Visit TrustArc.com now. Ask me a Paul if you have any questions.